questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight, our guest will explain what really makes you ill and why everything you thought you knew about disease is wrong. Voltaire once said, quote, Doctors are men who prescribe medicines of which they know little to cure diseases of which they know less in human beings of whom they know nothing, unquote. The conventional approach adopted by most healthcare systems entails the use of medicine to treat human disease. The idea encapsulated by Voltaire's quote will no doubt be regarded by most people as inapplicable to 21st century healthcare, especially the system known as modern medicine. The reason that people would consider this idea to no longer be relevant is likely to be based on the assumption that quote-unquote medical science has made significant advances since the 18th century and that 21st century doctors, therefore, possess a thorough if not quite complete knowledge of medicines, diseases, and the human body. Unfortunately, however, this would be a mistaken assumption, as our guests will demonstrate. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Don Lester and David Parker have backgrounds in the fields of accounting and electrical engineering. These fields both require an aptitude for logic, which proved extremely useful for their investigation that has involved more than 10 years of continuous research to find answers to the questions, what really makes people ill? The author's investigation of why people become ill was conducted from a different perspective, from that of the medical establishment. It was therefore free from the dogma and biases inherent within quote-unquote medical science. This unbiased and logical approach enabled them to follow the evidence with open minds and led them to discover the flaws within the information about illness and disease that is promulgated by the medical establishment. The result of their investigation are revealed within their book, What Really Makes You Ill? Why Everything You Thought You Knew About Disease Is Wrong. Their website is whatreallymakesyouill.com. Don Lester and David Parker join us from the UK. Hello, Don and David. How are you? Fine, thank you. Hi, Mel. Hi, Mel. Uh, Thank you. Yes, we're very well and uh, trust you are too. Uh, We've uh, been looking forward to having a chat with you. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we can cover some 
interesting stuff for your listeners and uh, hopefully clear up a few misconceptions because it's uh, quite a challenging title, our book, which was uh, <laughs> some people might even say offensive when we say uh, everything you thought you knew about disease is wrong. Um, but uh, hopefully that will be revealed more as we as we get to chat. The truth first will hurt you, but then it will set you free. So I understand. Let's begin with your story. And by the way, I have received so many requests in the past couple of months. It seems that a lot of people are waking up to what your book is all about. But let's begin with your story. You have a very non-traditional story, and it took you, what was that, a decade to write this book? Correct, yes. Yes, uh, 10 years of research went into the book, and uh, that's why it's quite a tome of nearly 800 pages, and uh, there's 40 pages of citations. Uh, you know, the research that we did over those 10 years, um, you know, it wasn't just a case of scanning around the internet and having a look at this, that, and the other. It's all from the literature written by other specialists, doctors and scientists, uh, uh, really over the last 150 years, uh, you know, right back, going back to when the sort of germ theory was put forward by Louis Pasteur and uh, and criticised quite a lot, even then, by uh, doctors of the age, you know, who didn't believe what he was saying. And, uh, and that's why it's still called a germ theory. It's never been proven. And, uh, and that's where we had to start. So we, we did go back in time. Um, but we came to it in... Um, probably what people might think is an unusual way because my background is electrical engineering and Dawn's was uh, is in accounting, uh, both professionals in our fields. But we had many interests and uh, Dawn and I have known one another for about over 20 years. And we started working together, um, I guess, 15 years ago, something like that. Um, but because uh, we've written another couple of little books before this <laughs> tome, um, and the first book that we were writing was about the nature of reality. But we did, we wrote under a pen name then, uh, NOR, which stands for the nature of reality, because that had been a lifelong interest of mine as to what life is about. So, you know, does it have meaning? Uh, what happens to us when we die? And all of, you know, all the big questions that people ask. And, uh, you know, uh, so that's what that one is about. But whilst we were writing that book uh, and doing some research, uh, there was one of the chapters was about illness and uh, in particular about viruses and we realized at the time we, we didn't really know very much about viruses so we thought we'd better do some research and um, that was that was Pandora's box that was the proverbial tin of worms as they say in the UK you know once you'd opened it all sorts of stuff came out which was a great shock to us because um, we were brought up the same as everyone else you know traditional uh, education and told right from Oh, the, the offset that, um, you know, germs make you ill. Uh, doctors know what they're doing, you know, very respectable and respected people. And uh, it was all based on science. And uh, vaccinations were good for you, you know, they prevented disease. Um, all of the standard things, you know, that's what we've been brought up to do and uh, and believe. And, uh, and we did. So when we started doing that initial research, um, the strangely, the first disease that we came across, and it was purely by accident, was uh, the HIV AIDS uh, controversy. And as, as we've often said to people, we, we didn't even know there was a controversy. We thought in the 80s, you know, we're, <laughs> we're old enough to know all that and uh, live through it. And uh, we'd had all the doomsday 
uh, scenarios given to us that uh, this was going to be a disease that swept the world and it didn't matter whether you're homosexual or heterosexual, you know, millions, literally tens of millions were going to die worldwide and uh, and no one knew what to do about it, you know, and everyone was as uh, scared, you know, that they thought they'd never have sex again, as one said, you know, so it was, yeah, and... Of course, none of those things came to be true. Um, you know, it didn't sweep the world, killing tens of millions of people. Well, more than that, actually, they were predicting. And of course, there are many parallels between the doomsday prophecies that we were getting then, again, built on computer models, as per the coronavirus uh, nonsense. And I'll call it that, and we'll explain more later why, why we can say that. Um, but again, the coronavirus thing is all built on uh, prophecies built on computer models which have been shown time and time again to be completely incorrect um, and uh, you know we, we, we'll talk a bit more about that so we that's really what started it and also some personal things that had happened in my life where various friends and family who had been diagnosed with various cat excuse me cancers had um, taken all the traditional uh, forms of uh, uh, cut, burn, and uh, all the rest of it, um, and uh, followed the doctor's orders, and uh, and unfortunately all died, um, and so that was the, started off a big personal question for me, you know, that because uh, at the, the time the medical establishment probably still is, were bragging that uh, you know their treatments of cancer was uh, so much improved that they were having fifty uh, percent success rates, and uh, obviously I know that. Uh, in well at least half a dozen of my close friends and family who had been diagnosed with cancer over the years uh, who had all died so i knew very well that there was no 50 percent success rate it was 100 percent failure rate so <clears throat> that was again the first big question um so all these things sort of came together and uh, really as it was such a shock to dawn and i we realized the medical establishment was so wrong about the hiv aids thing when it was shown quite clearly that there was no virus involved in it it was very much more straightforward things such as um the, in, as people know i'll only briefly speak of it because i'm maybe your listeners have uh, heard all this before but uh, it was quite easy to demonstrate that um the things that were started off in San Francisco area in the States were with the relatively small homosexual community there. Uh, the disease is nothing to do with being homosexual, uh, but it was to do with the sort of lifestyle that the people had. They were uh, fairly heavy recreational drug users, uh, in particular poppers, which is basically amyl nitrate, um, and that which is very toxic to the body. Um, but then they were being treated with heavy doses of uh, antibiotics. So a combination of their drug use and heavy doses of antibiotics was what was actually making them extremely ill. Um, but the, <clears throat> that was not really recognised by the doctors in there. They thought they were seeing something new, a new disease. And um, well, as much as anything, out of desperation, they decided they were going to treat them with uh, AZT or AZ, AZT, I think, as it may be known in America, um, which was originally um, a chemotherapy drug. So, again, very extremely toxic. And in the strength of doses that they were giving to people in, in the early 80s, um, it killed everyone. You know, and, uh, you know, quite a few famous people in there, Freddie Mercury for one and uh, Rudolf Nureyev for the belly dancer another and, and many others uh, be, because the dose just killed them all. 
But of course, it was blamed on uh, AIDS, which was quite untrue. And uh, there are a few doctors who honestly now admit that. They know that that dose was just too strong. Now, I think they still use AZT, but uh, in much uh, smaller doses. So uh, if anything, it just takes longer to poison people. So again, I'm cutting a long story short there, but we did a lot of research, talked to a lot of doctors, a lot of sufferers, went to a lot of group meetings to find find out uh, what the experiences of people were, talk to other writers um, over quite a long period of time. And, and as I say, the story was put together and I think it's fairly well known now, although the establishment still maintains that there's a virus that uh, uh, causes AIDS, which is absolutely not true. There is no scientific proof on that. So that was the first sort of major illness that we examined and uh, again as I said Dawn and I said crikey you know if they're wrong about that so wrong about that what else are they wrong about and that was it that was the start of our journey down the proverbial rabbit hole as they say which just got deeper and deeper and uh, why it took 10 years of solid research um, because both because Dawn and I have both got technical backgrounds um, we knew how to study, we knew how to research, and we had no preconceived ideas, unlike doctors. Um, we had no preconceived ideas. We could ask every question we wanted and we wouldn't rest until we got plausible answers. Um, and that's what we did. And um, that's what sort of brought the book into being. And we've written it as a, a bit like a detective story, really starting right back with looking at the germ theory and whether that can possibly be correct if there's any scientific evidence to support it, which there isn't. And uh, we build the evidence throughout the book um, so that it's easy for people to see by the time they get to the end of it as to why it's conclusively proves that there is no scientific evidence to prove that either viruses, the so-called virus, um, uh, all bacteria for that matter, um, are the cause of any disease, and I do mean any disease. And we tested this hypothesis of ours, both in every human disease that we could come across, all the major ones at least, to see whether it, there was always a plausible answer as to what actually had caused the illness. And we were able to find much more plausible answers, none of which involved um, germs of any sort. Um, so we also, we sort of expanded our view and decided, I wondered, well, okay, if it's, uh, we can't find any scientific basis for the cause of disease in humans, is it the same for animals? So we started looking at animal diseases and we found it held true for them too. And uh, we, we cite all these cases, obviously, in detail in the book. And uh, one of the uh, ones that I often like to tell people about is because it was peculiar to the UK, which we could never understand until we looked into it. And that was what became known as mad cow disease in the UK. Um, and literally whole herds had been slaughtered by the government ministries um, because it, it gave the appearance of the cows going mad. They can't, couldn't stand up properly. They lost complete control and uh, they ended up being destroyed. But when we looked into it, what we found um, is that uh, it was due to poisoning. That, and this is why it's peculiar to the UK, because the cattle, the, the government has specified that the cattle should be washed down in a in a, a dip, which actually turned out to be organo organophosphates, 
which are highly toxic, they're a neurotoxin. And we found that this was actually the cause of why the cows were going mad. Uh, but particularly why it was really seemed to only be happening in the UK is we found that the strength that had been demanded by the ministry in the UK only was something like four times as strong as it was anywhere else. And so it was the strength of this uh, poisonous or um, neurotoxin that was actually seeping into the bloodstreams of the cows and particularly into their uh, neurosystems and uh, giving the appearance of going mad. And um, uh, and eventually they died or were killed, slaughtered, because the government insisted it was a disease of some sort. And so they wiped out entire herds um, with the mistaken view that um, they could prevent the spread of this disease. But again, nothing to do with a germ uh, and so on. And we looked at myxomatosis in rabbits and various things like that. So we've never to this day found any uh, so-called disease that can be shown to prove that it's caused by a germ, uh, despite the protestations and uh, of that from the medical establishment. Um, and I, I hasten to point out that it's not because we think that uh, all doctors are evil people and uh, are just out to deceive the public. Of course, they're not. Uh, but they're just misinformed. You know, they, they have uh, a regime of teaching for their four years, I think it is, of uh, medical training, uh, which they cram full of information. Um, and they, they're not really allowed to ask questions. And we've, we've talked to many doctors about this, you know, uh, and they're given so much, you know, so it's they're just told basically in simple terms, this bacteria causes that disease, this virus causes that disease, and this is the sort of treatment that you give for it. I mean, it's obviously I'm giving a simplified version, but that's basically it. I mean, they don't do any research of their own as to how this virus is proved to cause this disease. And of course, the question papers, if they want to pass their exam, is they have to answer it in the format that they've been trained. Um, because they believe it's true uh, in the same way, I guess, as uh, everyone else did. You know, all the lay public, including us to start with, believe it to be true. But it's only when you go beyond those boundaries, as we could, because uh, it didn't matter how foolish the questions might seem that we asked. Uh, we kept asking them until we got sensible answers that we could source from more than one source, as it were. So we didn't just take one person's uh, view on this. Um, and, and again, why it took 10 years to put all this together. But it was quite easy, particularly with viruses, to show that the basic uh, questions that should be asked and should be answered, which is to show that a virus is the cause of a disease. First of all, it has to be properly isolated and purified. Um, then its full genetic makeup documented. And finally, the purified uh, viral particles, we'll call them that, should be able to be introduced into a healthy person and the disease should develop. Now, those are the basic fundamentals that should be done. Uh, fairly straightforward, but they never have been. And surprisingly, for any virus that you'd care to mention, so it's, we're not just talking about coronavirus now, and it's certainly not been done for that, but for any virus, and we, we could barely believe these findings when we first came across it. And so we kept checking and checking and looking for the original scientific 
peer-reviewed papers to show that they had actually done these uh, tests and they know where to be found and um, which is of course a big warning sound if you like to say there's something amiss because you know to be able to get a peer-reviewed paper that you're the discoverer of uh, a particular virus that causes said disease you know it's quite a prestigious thing you know there's a, a lot of kudos attached to it uh, not to say um money and <laughs> better jobs prospects um and fame and fortune in the uh, history of uh, medical uh the medical sciences i hesitate almost to use that word because we found there's nothing scientific about uh, the medical establishment so those peer-reviewed papers should be readily available and they're not there and we're not the only people that have looked for them. Many people have looked for them, even luminaries like uh, Carrie Mullis, who was the inventor of the PCR, as people may know. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, died last year. And didn't um, you but, say that his test was not supposed to be for diagnosing um, any virus? Yes, correct. And uh, he said many times, you know, he's on the record as saying this is not, I mean, he got the Nobel Prize for this. So, you know, he should know. And he said many times while he was alive that uh, this is not what this PCR test is for. You know, in fact, if you do use it in the way it's being used, it will just give you lots of false positives, which, of course, is exactly what's happening. But that, of course, you may think, well, that's probably exactly what the authorities want. Lots of false positives so that then they can put out these figures of saying, oh, coronavirus is on the increase. Therefore, we need more of these draconian measures of uh, imprisoning people in their homes or uh, <laughs> or uh, insisting they have vaccinations or we insist they wear masks or whatever. Um and so it does play into their hands. So even though the actual inventor of the PCR test who said this is not what it's for, they've just totally ignored what he said and carry on doing it. And of course, lots of people since have said it, including us, you know, that's not what this test is for. But um, the authorities, the medical system, the media just totally ignore all of that and carry on um, as if uh, Carrie Mullis had never said anything which is, again, uh, I think a red flag to say there is something else afoot with this whole nonsense with coronavirus, is one is they can't prove and have never proved that this virus exists, you know, at all, along with any others, but they've never proved that this one exists, and yet they shut the world down on the basis that it does, and that it is so prolific and so pathogenic that it's swept around the world and is likely to kill millions uh, if we believe them. You know, all of this sort of thing we've heard before with HIV AIDS. And, uh, you know, I, I think many people realise that the figures are being manipulated as, to, as regards to deaths. You know, I mean, I would guarantee there is not one person anywhere in the world that has died from coronavirus. You know, because first of all, you've got, you've got to prove the virus exists and there have been no post-mortems anywhere that can show that that's been the actual cause of death. And I think, uh, well, speaking to uh, Dr. Andrew Kaufman, who's well aware of what's going on in America, and we've talked to him a number of times on this, you know, there's a lot of um, false reporting, and I'm being kind here, a lot of false reporting in hospitals about what people are dying from. You know, so people can come in with all sorts of uh, underlying problems, you know, quite 
health-threatening problems, and there are financial incentives, shall we say, to report them as being having coronavirus, and particularly if they die, of, of dying of coronavirus, and there are even more financial incentives if they get stuck on a ventilator which is almost guaranteed to kill most people, uh, particularly if you're ill uh, and elderly and go into hospital. I think a lot of people don't realise just how invasive um, being put on a ventilator is. I mean, people have to be put under general anaesthetic to have a ventilator uh, inserted into them, into their lungs, um, because the body would naturally fight it. So that's why they're put under general anaesthetic. And these people generally are, as I say, elderly. They've come into hospital with one or more underlying serious illnesses. Uh, so it's a recipe for disaster when you then not only put them on this ventilator, which is uh, kills most people anyway, no matter how healthy you are, uh, because of the way it's treated. But they were also put on very powerful antiviral drugs. Um, so you've got a cocktail of drugs. You've very invasive therapy to people that are already quite seriously ill. So it's hardly surprising you're going to get uh, a large number of people die in hospital, but then of course they just get put down to, well, they've died of coronavirus. And so the figures, uh, that's where the figures come from. But, uh, and we had, when looking at the records, the same thing was happening in Italy. And when the Italians eventually put out some more truthful reports, shall we say, as to, because as you know, parts of Italy were, put as a hotspot of the coronavirus and supposedly uh, mounting deaths were occurring um, in certain areas in Italy. But when the Italians put out the report, you got the same thing again. The people that were going into hospital supposedly with coronavirus were elderly, many of them in their 80s or late 80s, uh, and had two or more underlying serious illnesses. They conducted autopsies and they found out that there were comorbidities that were causing the death. Yes. Never was a, an autopsy to, able to prove that the death was from coronavirus. Exactly. I mean, you, can't, you can't, as I say, you, if you, when you go back to first principles, the first proof that the virus is real, you know, there is a pathogenic agent there. Um, and if you can't do that, you cannot attribute any deaths to it. And that's why I'm quite confident in saying no one anywhere can prove that uh, anyone has died of uh, this COVID virus, you know, it, it, because it's a nonsense. Um, which, again, you start to ask the question, so what's this all about? What is happening? Now, I know many people have said, well, people, that is, who believe that there is some sort of virus, but they just believe that it's um, no worse than a normal flu virus. Well, as we've already said, I mean, and we investigated the flu, <laughs> we investigated what that is, and particularly the 1918 so-called so Spanish flu, and we can talk about that if you wish. Um, and again, there is no virus at the base of that. There was no virus uh, at the base of the 1980 flu. There were many uh, reasons for what was happening there, um, which again, we can talk about, but just coming back to the COVID thing, there is no proof that any of the deaths that have occurred anywhere in the world can be attributed to any virus, um, and, and in particular, the uh, so-called COVID virus. So uh, it's not just a case of the governments of the world have overreacted to a virus that's no worse than the seasonal flu, as they like to 
call it. Um, so it's not just a case of they've overreacted. They certainly have overreacted, but they've overreacted over nothing at all. And they've overreacted so much that uh, it's completely disproportionate to anything that could be happening. And from a scientific basis, the things that they've uh, had as, well, those that will comply and we're not, <laughs> we don't, um, you know, wearing masks, I mean, first thing, it doesn't take much of, a, of an investigation to realize that uh, even if a virus was floating around, you know, viruses are so small, the virus particles, shall I say, or say virus, so-called virus particles, uh, are so small, they're measured in nanometers, okay, whereas the mesh in masks are measured in micrometers, and a nanometer is a thousand times smaller than a micrometer. So even if there were any viral particles floating around, they'd go straight through the masks anyway. So the mask couldn't possibly protect anyone, even if there was a virus floating about, which, of course, there isn't. So they're a complete waste of time and also sort of detrimental to health, because, as I'm sure your listeners know, they restrict the intake of oxygen and they restrict the output of carbon dioxide. You know, So they're uh, much more likely to cause respiratory problems than uh, actually protect the person. But I think there's Personally, I think there's something much more sinister going on with the mask wearing, um, and that is to sort of dehumanise people, uh, particularly these very large black masks. So particularly, well, I've noticed quite a, a number of the uh, American government uh, wear occasionally as they come out into public view, which I find very sinister. And I think there's a good reason for that. Um, they're meant to be. You know, there's lots of uh, other masks that people could wear, which are much prettier, shall we say, much lighter, less scary looking. But these large black masks that people, many people wear, both here and in the States, I think are designed to look sinister. They certainly dehumanise people. And uh, I, I think the whole thing is part of the plan to separate people up, to dehumanise people, to stop social interaction and uh, it has a great detrimental psychological impact on people, particularly children who are seeing all this happening. You know, young children, uh, as I'm sure people have said to you, um, they need to be able to see facial expressions. I mean, normal human beings need to be able to see facial expressions. And when they can't, they, there's a, a part of humanity is missing in human interaction. And I, I really do think this is part of the plan, as indeed is social distancing. You know, let's keep people separate. Let's impose, I assume they've done this in the States, they certainly have in the UK, let's limit the numbers, even if you do meet up, let's limit the numbers that you can have, even of your, even of your own family. How many of your family members can get together, even if they're still supposed to keep social distancing, and even if they're still supposed to wear masks? I mean, how inhuman is that? You know, uh, I know we see all the time lots of families where the sort of grandchildren have never physically met up with their grandparents or hugged or kissed them for the last six months. Um, you know, the best they can do is speak to them on the telephone or wave to them through the window or see them on Skype. You know, this is awful, uh, particularly for uh, elderly people who are then marooned in their house and get to see no one in, in times when they should be enjoying their uh, children and grandchildren. 
So again, it's all part of, I think, uh, a dehumanization plan that's been very well thought out by the people that are behind uh, this uh, farce of the coronavirus. It's the biggest play so far to gain control of people. And they're just using uh, a fake virus as the excuse. And I have to say, they're being very successful so far. Um, you know, I've always wondered, because we, we get so many messages from professionals, doctors, attorneys, accountants. Here's one from an accountant. Let me see what, let's see, this is for Dawn, because you are a, a, your expertise is in accounting, and it's all exact science. But one of our listeners who happens to be a CPA, I won't mention her name, brought something up to me uh, about a few days ago. And she said, please go to this video of Dr. Fauci. Obviously, you are aware who Dr. Fauci is in the United States. But I saw an interview where he, there was a slip of the tongue. He said, COVID-16, and he clearly stated it. And then immediately, you could see his nervous face. He corrected himself. And it made me wonder if this was going to be rolled out in 2017 after another candidate was supposed to win and the fact that another one won derailed the plans until 2020. What is your take on this? That's yeah. interesting. Um, as you say, a slip of the tongue are, uh, from somebody in, in that position is is probably uh, indicative of, of something else. Um, so, yes, the fact that it was 16 and, again, you know, election times. Uh, yes, I mean, it's possible, but obviously I, you know, we couldn't sort of comment without having any more information, but it, it certainly would would be possible. We know. I mean, we know that... Uh... Things like this are planned long term. You know, the oh, I'm sure it's no surprise to your listeners uh, <clears throat> about uh, the sort of uh, well, often called the globalists who have got had an agenda for many years, decades um, for a one world government. You know, I'm sure that comes as no surprise to anyone. Right. And uh, these are the people that are behind this. Obviously, it's their long term dream to gain world control, to have one world government. Uh, so there are no sovereign countries um just one government governing governing the world which will be them so there's no elections uh and but the biggest thing is obviously to control the people they need to be able to get the people under control and that's what part of uh, one of the big parts of what this scheme is now they've been planning this for a long time and we know that just in october of last year you know i'm sure many of again many of your listeners have seen saw that was on the internet event 201 where they laid out supposedly a fictitious uh, plan of uh, a what-if situation scenario. And there was all major people from around the world who were at this uh, event 201. Uh, and it was laying out what they would have to do if there was some virulent virus uh, appearing in the world, on the world stage, which just happened to be uh, in their scenario in China, and uh, possibly coming from bats or pigs and so on, you know, and they talked about how they would have to make sure they got full control of the media so that the message was uh, all put out uh, in saturation around the world and, and also all these sorts of measures. So they'd been planning it and they've even told us in event 201 exactly what they were going to do. And that was only in October 
of 2019 and literally just a few months later they they unleashed it on the, the world and they didn't even have the uh well they ha- they were so brazen that they followed the plan even that oh yes and it arose in china and supposed to have been in a fish market or something and still bats are talked about you know it's it's almost unbelievable they didn't even have the or well, i think they it's because it shows such little respect for the world public that they didn't care um and it was also a coronavirus yeah and it was a coronavirus as well so you know, they told us what they were going to do, and then they did it, and here we are. You know, and uh, uh, and it's almost like they just shrug their shoulders and say, "Well, what, what are you going to do about it?" You know, uh, and I'm sincerely hoping that enough people are waking up so that we can do something about it. And I, I'm not talking about sort of violent revolution here. You know, I'm talking about people waking up and just refusing to partake of these ridiculous measures uh, and unhealthy measures that uh, governments around the world are imposing on everyone, you know. Um, we need People need to stand up and be counted, you know, and one of the easiest ways to do it is refuse to wear the masks, refuse to do the social distancing. There's nothing violent about that. Um, I know certainly in the UK, it may be somewhat different in the States, uh, the government tried to make out that it's a law that you have to wear masks, um, but it isn't. When you look at uh, the literature, you realise that it's what they would call guidelines. So it's not a law. Uh, They try to make out that it is, and they try to put all sorts of pressure on people to wear them, you know, with notices in shops and security guards in shops who will will sometimes challenge you and say, oh, uh, do you have your mask, sir? Um, We can provide you with one if you don't have one. And um, we always refuse and say, no, thank you. We don't need one of those. Uh, uh, it's not compulsory for us to wear it um, and carry on. And that's as much as we hear about it. We, It's very disappointing when we go into the supermarkets uh, that we tend to be the only ones in there not wearing a mask. And we think, well, you know, nothing's happening to us. Um, I only wish people would sort of just pay a little bit of attention and do just a little bit of research and they would soon see that even if nothing else, the masks are a complete nonsense. Social distancing is a complete nonsense. I mean, we've now got in the UK, the government's latest piece of nonsense is that after getting all the pubs and clubs and bars to uh, make themselves, as they called it, to coronavirus safe, you know, and they've spent fortunes putting up all sorts of plastic barriers and set to separate the public from one another and uh, their staff from the public, and uh, and they encourage everyone to start going back to work. And no sooner had they done that than the government decided that they were going to have to do another close down um, because they said they had information that the coronavirus is more virulent after 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I know. Unbelievable. So they told all the clubs and that that they'd got to be shut by 10. Uh, I mean, they have. there is no evidence to prove that, of course. They, they haven't even been able to prove the there is a coronavirus and they have been asked a number of people in the uk and i know new zealand as well uh under the freedom of information act have written to the government and asked them for the scientific evidence to prove that this coronavirus actually exists that it's been properly isolated and all the rest of it and i've seen the documents that have come back from the government departments which said they are not in possession of that information which beggars belief to think, well, if you're not in possession of this information, how can you close down the country? On what basis are you closing down the country? But of course, these questions are never answered. And it was the same in New Zealand. So they're, 
so blatant about this that even though they know we know, they have no scientific uh, information to prove this virus exists. Um, they just go ahead and do it anyway. And uh, almost on the basis of well, what you're going to do about it, uh, which is just shows the contempt that they have for uh, the human population in all countries. And they're supposed to be elected by the people. But I think this is a, an exercise in compliance. The more people comply, the more the powers that want to be gain ground. Do you think this is, this is almost like a, I remember I was also during the time of AIDS, 1985, when it all of a sudden fear, it just reminds me of it. The AIDS fear marketing template. Do you think yes. it's the same template that they're using now with COVID-19? Absolutely. I mean, the, the that that's one of their um, main tools, if you like, to get people scared so that they will comply. Um, I mean, we've talked to a few people who know there's something strange going on. Um, you know, they it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, they're really sort of looking at it, um, questioning it, but they will still wear the mask because just in case they're just slightly fearful that there might be something and they don't want to catch it because they haven't quite been able to get to the information that says that there are no particles that are called viruses that are actually causing disease. I mean, that really is, um, you know, quite a few layers of research down and it takes more than a few minutes on Google to, to find that out. Um, well, to, so, to be honest, if I could just interject there, sorry, Don, just but because, and I'm sure you're aware, the level of censorship on both the search engines, which includes Google, has increased tremendously over the last few months. And you can't do any serious re research now if you're relying on uh, the, the search engines, because you won't get to those layers, you know. Uh, you know, if you typed in, you know, does the coronavirus exist, you'll never get to anywhere that said, no, there's good evidence to show that this is uh, completely fake. Uh, you just won't get there. Um, so, and I've noticed that. So, I mean, it's only if you know where to go and can go directly there and you know uh, who you can trust that you can find out anything now. And that's why in our research, when we put the book together, we weren't relying on search engines or uh, Google or any of them. Any of them, we were looking at the literature, printed literature that uh, we could get that was written by other doctors and scientists uh, over the decades. Um, and um, that's in our possession. So it's, uh, but it's even more difficult now for anyone to do searches. So sorry about that, Dawn, to cut across, but it's, yeah. it's, it's just to let people know it, it's, almost impossible to to do any serious research if you're just relying on the internet um i mean we did find that um because some people uh have <clears throat> written shall we say comments on um other people's websites where some of our interviews have gone up and we've seen people say oh yes yeah, basically um everything that uh it, that we've written about has been debunked and they just put in a a web link and uh, to some supposed scientific paper that's supposed to say that they, uh, some team somewhere uh, has actually uh, isolated the virus and uh, it's met Cox postulates and uh, the virus has been proved to exist and that it does cause the disease. Now, we're not the only ones who've looked at this. Uh, in fact, uh, Andy Kaufman has also looked at it fairly recently, uh, at several of these so-called scientific papers. And there's quite a, it's quite easy to see the amount and level of fraud that there is 
uh, going off. Now, one of these papers, and it happens to be one of the papers that uh, Dr. Andy Kaufman looked at himself and, and one we looked at, is <clears throat> actually has been published in Nature Mag uh, Nature Journal, which is sort of the most prestigious um establishment uh, journal that there is in the world so for them to publish a document like this you know you would think well that's that's uh, you know that's very prestigious so whatever they say in there is true but anyway again quite a long story short when those so-called scientific papers are examined if you read the ex the abstract the sort of little short form bit at the beginning of the paper it will say things like, uh, yes, the virus has been uh, isolated. They're very careful about to use isolated rather than purified because there is a difference. So they'll say the virus has been isolated. It meets all of Cox postulates and has been proved to uh, cause the disease. But um, Andy very wisely jumps, ignores all that because he knows that the reading the abstract doesn't mean that that is true. And so he and us, we jump to the methodology to see, well, what have they actually done? And again, cut a long story short, and this is the paper that was published in Nature, you can see that they haven't actually purified the virus, they haven't met all of Cox postulates, and they haven't proved that it's the cause of a disease. And in some of these papers, and that one's one of them, the writers of the paper actually admit it, <laughs> which is bizarre actually in the methodology they admit that, that they haven't actually isolated it purified it met cox postulates and proved that it caused the disease so it's in complete contradiction to what they've written in the abstract now to me and andy says the same this is complete fraud and more shocking because it's put in nature magazine which is supposed to be ever so ever so a complete fraud going on in the paper. Now, you've got to realise just how deep the levels of fraud the establishment are prepared to go to to hoodwink the public. So we, we're saying to people, you know, just the casual, uh, unwary reader of these documents, because most people just read the abstract. They don't go through all the methodology and all the technical terms. They just read the abstract. And so that's why it's done. So people go, oh, look, this, this paper said... They've met all the criteria, you know, it's been proven. So therefore, whatever you say um, is rubbish. And they don't bother to look at uh, what has actually gone off and realise, no, they haven't proved anything at all. And they actually admit it themselves. So, and the people that read these papers are not just, um, shall we say, researchers. You know, th this will be uh, most medical um, professionals as well um, because they haven't got time to read the, I mean, literally millions of, of papers that are produced every year so they'll be selective and they'll see a few that maybe relate to something that they're looking at and um, uh, the very first line of the of that abstract actually says or refers to COVID-19 which is caused by the coronavirus so um, all medical people who look at that paper will see that line and uh, believe that statement because that's the way they're uh, they're trained they won't look at anything more in the paper and they'll just say well that, okay that confirms it because it's in nature as David said you know it's a highly prestigious uh, journal and so well it's in nature so it must be true just the same as um, all the other papers uh, you know just like it's you know well it's in the mainstream media so it must be true because they're telling us what's correct and again um, you know even the uh, medical people who 
they don't have the time to do that level of research um, because, you know, they've got practices, they've got um, patients to see. And so they, they haven't got the time literally to look at all the different um, papers. And so they will look at the ones um, and they're obviously being uh, fed the same information or misinformation I that, mean, you know, there is a coronavirus and it's causing a disease. And I mean, Andy, Andy Kaufman admits himself as a doctor, you know, he's used to do the same himself, you know, because as Dawn said, they don't have time to read the full papers. So they just read the abstract. And that's why it's done. And that's where the subterfuge and the deceit is easy to perpetrate. You know, so doctors will just read the abstract. Oh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, we, we know, we believe coronavirus exists, we believe it's uh, been purified and isolated, meets Cox postulates, there it is in the abstract, and away they go. Uh, that takes all of five minutes to read the abstract, rather than spending the time to go through the methodology and find out just what has actually been done. So you can see how it's easy to deceive everyone, because that they know this and they know that doctors don't have the time and that a lot of professionals don't have the time and because of that they get away with this deceit even at uh, even at doctors level uh, who should know better but of course they don't and uh, because they've always been trained to believe that viruses exist and have been proved to exist they don't question it um, and so and so the the whole lie is uh, perpetrated and propagated and and that's why we're in the world situation sad situation that we're in now um and the media you know are of course bought and paid for and i'm sure you know and your listeners know so it's controlled media it's controlled by the same people so you've got governments media and medical establishment all controlled um agencies who are all singing the same song because that's what they've been told to do um, and so that's how they maintain the lie and anyone who tries to get the truth out there I mean people if they look at it they'll notice that nowhere on their televisions or radios do they ever see an actual proper debate going on as to for anyone to be able to put up alternative views about coronavirus or 5G, for instance, which is another hot topic, but you'll never see it. And if anyone, uh, and as we had it in the UK, accidentally mentioned something that might be considered controversial, like, oh, well, why can't there be a debate about it? You know, they get censored, they get suspended from their job um, and uh, could possibly lose their job. So they're jumped on uh, from a great height. So they've effectively stopped any rational thought, any rational debate that there could be alternatives to what the mainstream are putting out. And, and they said they were going to do this when they did their event 201 in October last year. They said they were going to do this. And sh sure as uh, God made little green apples, that's exactly what they've done. And they've blanketed the media across the world to always put out the same message and to accept no dissension and to accept no alternative views. So here we are, which even, is now quite a desperate situation. Even in 2010, and I discussed this in my Corona Chronicles, in 2010, a Rockefeller report came out with almost the same scenario. And this was 10 years before. But I keep hearing many pharmaceutical companies that are getting ready to roll out their COVID-19 vaccine and are currently undergoing human trials. When I hear of those humans, or shall we call them guinea pigs, 
Are they playing Russian roulette? And by the way, I know many people who volunteered. Some of these people have young children. Your thoughts on this? Well, yes. I mean, in the past, we've known people who volunteer for these things because there's quite uh, good remuneration, so we say. They get paid quite a bit of money if they are volunteer for one of these drug trials. You know, uh, I mean, it would... Personally, knowing what we know, it wouldn't matter how much money they offered us, we'd never, ever subject ourselves to these things. And you're quite right, they are playing Russian roulette. And uh, not far from us, uh, we're just north of London here, but uh, in Oxfordshire, where they've been doing some of these trials, um, um, they've had to shut down the trials because uh, more than one of the uh, people that they were experimenting on, as you quite rightly say, guinea pigs, had become seriously ill from the uh, life-threateningly ill from the vaccinations that uh, and drugs that they were being given. Uh, but of course, all that is kept very quiet. You know, it's difficult to come by that information and it's not put out very much at all uh, in the mainstream media. So, uh, and this is the way of things. They they keep the bad bits quiet and just carry on with the scaremongering. And it's quite obvious. I, I, it's not hard to realise that, um, yeah, they're building uh, everyone up to uh, to bring in a vaccination. And uh, as we've said, you know, people often ask us, say, well, what, what do you think about this vaccination? And we say the same as we've said about all vaccinations, which we investigated extensively to try and find if there is any proof that any vaccine can confer immunity. And we could never find any where there's any scientific proof that a vaccine confers immunity. And uh, but we found lots of evidence to show that they do confer harm, <laughs> uh, sometimes very serious harm, um, even to the point of killing people. And there's many cases, documented cases of this happening. And there are many doctors and scientists, as we've said, that uh, whose work we cite in our book, who've done extensive research on this before us and have come to the same conclusions. You know, there is no safe vaccine. There never has been a safe vaccine and never will be. Uh, and even if people who say, well, you know, maybe maybe it's just worth the risk because the benefits outweigh the risk, you know. Uh, no, that's just not so. There are no benefits from a vaccine. The toxins that are in them uh, and so-called adjuvants are so toxic, you know, you've got trace mercury, you've got aluminium, formaldehyde. And um, as I've said to many people who are vegans, there's always in these vaccines um, blood serum, which they take from cattle. So you've got a blood product from cattle in there. Now, obviously, this would horrify vegans. And Dawn and I are vegans. Um, so just from that point alone, uh, vegans need to be made aware of it because they, they don't want animal products. You know, they take great care not to eat or drink or have anything that has got animal products in it. You know, they want to keep their bodies clear of those things. Aborted fetuses are included in vaccines. Absolutely. You know, it's all, the, the vaccine business is absolutely disgusting when you look at it. And I often say to people, you know, the, the rules, certainly in the UK, that if a doctor's about to give you a vaccination and he accidentally drops the syringe on the floor and it breaks, you know, the contents has to be treated as toxic waste, you know, with a very uh, special cleanup mechanism. Now, that should warn people, you know, if the contents of that syringe has to be treated as toxic waste in a very serious manner, then surely it has no business in your bloodstream. Um, but 
this is what happens. Um, so, you know, if it could be proved that they had any benefits whatsoever, then, you know, we would say so. But no one who has seriously looked into vaccinations, the whole process of what's in them and whether they can confer immunity, has never been able to find any scientific evidence. Uh, it's purely assumptions. And maybe a little later we'll, we'll, we'll talk about uh, the business of uh, so-called antibodies because, uh, again, that's another uh, myth, you know, that uh, that antibodies uh, are produced by vaccinations and therefore antibodies will confer immunity, long-lasting immunity, to uh, the various diseases that they're supposed to uh, protect you against. A again, a complete myth, and we, c we can talk about the lack of science behind that, because uh, I'm, I'm looking at the time here. I don't know whether we're coming up to your first break, uh, you, you, you in, tell in me. Five, in five minutes, but let me just say what you just said about the antibodies. I had a chance to read a lot, a lot from, from the book, but the inoculation which preceded vaccination, and then when a vaccine is not quote-unquote effective, on his subject, they call it, oh, that person is a non-responder. Can you elaborate on this? Yes, this is uh, one of the many get-outs that um, uh, the medical establishment use when the rules and guidelines that they put out uh, is shown to be false, so they have to make up some excuse for it. And uh, non-responder is one of them where they just go, oh, well, it's just obviously something wrong with that person, really. You know, it works for everyone else, uh, but not for them. And uh, there's uh, another term that they like to use, which is asymptomatic, you know, that uh, where they're saying that, uh, well, the person has the disease, uh, but they don't show any symptoms. They're not ill in any way, but uh, we say that they've got it. So they'd class them as asymptomatic, which is obviously a nonsense. You know, if you're not ill, then you don't have a disease. It's as simple as that. And the the pure nonsense of that one, uh, when we were looking back in history, uh, back to 1907, <clears throat> with, uh, and this happened in the States, uh, when there were uh, outbreaks of typhoid, Uh, there, and there's a, a very good story which we talk about um, called Typhoid Mary, and you may still be able to find information about this on the net. I think we may have something on our website about it. But uh, cutting a long story short, uh, while there was the typhoid uh, problems in 1907, um, there was this lady we'll call her Mary uh, because that's in the literature, who came into contact on a regular basis with people with typhoid, but she never got it herself. So the authorities, in their infinite wisdom, decided that um, she, she must just be a carrier, that uh, she didn't actually ever become ill, but she must be carrying the disease and therefore was a public menace and should be incarcerated, which is exactly what they did. They put her in solitary confinement in a, in a medical institution and kept her there for the rest of her life which was another 30 years. She actually died in solitary confinement in this institution. Uh, so that was around 1940 when she died, so it's within living memory, where the medical establishment, um, because someone was actually healthy and not catching the disease, decided that they must be a carrier. So hence they now call it asymptomatic. You could be a carrier, you have the disease, even though you're not ill. Uh, and that was in 1907. And here we are in uh, 2020, and they're doing the same thing, but on a much larger scale. People who are actually healthy are getting 
not confined in a medical institution, but confined in their homes, even though they've got no symptoms and they are healthy. But it's a, well, just in case, you know, you could be a carrier. So the medical establishments have not learned anything um, at all and still carry on with ridiculous and unscientific methodology. And uh, it's causing great havoc and misery and deaths around the world. Um, so hopefully that uh, <laughs> that sort of clears that one up a little bit. You know, the, you can't be a carrier of a disease and not show any symptoms. You know, that just means you haven't got the disease. It's as simple as that. You're a healthy person, you know. But this is the sort of thing that the medical establishment does um, is, is make up a term and a different rule to try and cover their uh, blunders. And uh, we may get to talk about it later. They, they do the same with uh, what they call autoimmune diseases. And this is where they, they can't show that a bacteria or a virus is the cause of the disease that they're attributing to a person. So they just say that, well, it's obviously the body attacking itself and they give it the name of an autoimmune disease. But again, there is no scientific evidence for that. And uh, again, there are very plausible reasons as to what causes those symptoms, uh, which we can perhaps talk about uh, a little later, if you wish. Absolutely. And I've been saying for the past few months since this COVID-19 situation started, that the goal of the vested interest, you can fill in the blanks, powers that be, new world order, whatever, is to hijack our immune system. I want to know on the other side, if you believe that to be the case. And back to COVID too, the global quarantine, when you use that term, aren't the sick supposed to be the ones in quarantine? What happens to the healthy when they quarantine for a prolonged amount of time to deprive themselves from fresh air, sun, and, and even interaction, especially children? What are the long-term effects of quarantine? And if I remember correctly, quarantine, the term comes from the Latin, I'm sorry, for from the Venetian language, Quarantena, which is the same in Spanish, which means 40 days. We've been at this for how long now? And they keep the fear alive with mandatory face masks and the threat of a second wave. What do you think is really happening? And what is the end game from your perspective? And we'll get your answer on the other side. How can people buy the book and learn more about your work? Don and David. Okay, well, our book is uh, readily available on our website, uh, which is uh, uh, whatreallymakesyouill.com. Um, so you can, and we've, there's all sorts of free information up there, including various interviews we've done. Uh, they can buy the book from Amazon anywhere in the world uh, or any of the many online booksellers. And there's many of them. Surprises me sometimes just how many there are. But uh, they all seem to uh, make our book available. So uh, yes, it's a big book. But um, people can also buy the um, Kindle version of it, which obviously is uh, much cheaper. It's probably about well, it's less than ten dollars. Um, but uh, so it is readily available. But uh, yeah, do if in any doubt, visit our website, have a look. You can get a bit more information. Um, but obviously, I would recommend the book because in the eight, nearly 800 pages, there's all the details are there, so you can see why we say the things that we do and where the researchers come from to back up what we say. And when we come back, we'll discuss what really makes us ill and also what makes us healthy. So stay with us. My special guests tonight are Don Lester and David Parker. This is Mel Hasselbrick, and you are listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first part. 
of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, and all of our material, proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.